Before we get started, I want to take the opportunity to talk about our partner for this podcast, BravoPay. BravoPay is a marketplace and payment platform for musicians and content creators like streamers, sports influencers, personal trainers, and, well, podcasters. You can create a fan page on their app and set up shop offering physical and digital products as well as premium subscriptions. It's easy to share your Bravo link with others on your social media so that, for the rest of you, can support your favorite creators. Check it out at app.trybravo.com. I'll also leave a link in the description. You're listening to The 80-20 Show, an inside look into the music industry. Welcome everyone to the 8020 show. I am your wonderful host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is Daphne Green from Daphne and the Glitches. Now, Daphne and I go way back from how she got into music and then leading into finding 42 Eternal, which ended up being one of the first bands signed to 8020 Records. We also discuss moving out to Los Angeles her experiences recording in a studio and releasing music under Statues of Cats, her first project she founded. In addition, we talk about Daphne's gender transition and her experiences as transgender in the music industry. We also discuss the fallout between 8020 Records and Statues of Cats, as well as Daphne's new project, Daphne and the Glitches. This is a very special episode to me, as Daphne is one of my closest friends. So this is a long one, sorry, not sorry, as there is so much we talked about in regards to Daph's incredible journey, as well as diving into our own friendship. I hope you enjoy this interview with Daphne Green. Hey, Daphne, how are you doing today? Doing great. How about you, buddy? I'm doing good, thanks. I really appreciate it. Uh, So before we get started, actually, can you tell our audience how do you self-identify? Sure thing. So... Um, I identify as a transgender woman. She, her pronouns, please. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, So yeah, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning, way, 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 long time ago into how do you get involved into music? Like what what got you interested in music? What got me interested in music? Well, I think you and I probably share a similar story when it comes to um, brass introduction to music. Um, as you know, I used to play trumpet, uh, starting in fourth grade, um, back when the grade school, you know, music instructors came and showed everybody, oh, here are, here's a clarinet, here's a trombone, here's, you know, this and that. And I thought I wanted to play the clarinet. I thought that was going to be what I wanted. And my dad was like, no, I think you should play the trumpet. (laughs) That is amazing. I actually completely forgot about that because when I was choice, uh, choosing, choosing an instrument, choosing, wow, this is going to be good. Uh, choosing, <laughs> choosing an instrument. Yes. The trumpet and the clarinet were also my two choices. Right. Because my mother played the clarinet and my father played the trumpet. So they just put presented both because they both had still had theirs as from when they were kids. And so they let me try both of those instruments out and see if there's one of those that I liked. And if there wasn't, we would try something else. But I really attached to the trumpet specifically. So that's funny that you <laughs> end up having to say two choices. Right? 
I think I think my dad was a little biased because he played the trumpet and he's like, well, I can help with that. You know, like I can I can help teach there. <laughs> but so, yeah, I don't know how to do with a woodwind instrument. So what what why did the clarinet then come into the picture? I don't know. Honestly, I think I just liked the sound of it. I think I liked, you know, I thought it was cool. It was a black instrument. Um, and, you know, when you're a kid, you're just like, oh, try, try it out, see what works, see what, see what feels good. And, and, you know, do you remember, like, did they have you do the same thing where like they had instruments where you could try and like try making a trumpet noise for the first time? And they're like, okay, you go like this. <laughs> yeah but except it wasn't this class it was my dad <laughs> was it oh my gosh yeah. it was my father because that was a thing because they they knew how to play so they told me i remember this i was in my parents bedroom and they took it out okay. in their closet both instruments i don't yeah. think i've ever told this story before but i remember this very clearly and i was sitting i was sitting on the bed and so they presented me with both the trumpet and the clarinet and so my mom would be like, okay, you have to bite down like this on the reed and like have to, you know, you do these combinations, things like that, and then start playing. And then my dad, exactly the same thing was just like, go like this and like, you know, and do that. And then, and I to try to make a noise out of the trumpet. So I think it wasn't making that decision during school. It was that I had to choose an instrument and I already chose it ahead of time before going into fourth grade. I made that okay, decision going so into Okay, so how old were you when when this happened? Do you remember? I th I think it was right around when you like you mentioned. I think it was uh 3rd 3rd 4th grade, something okay. like that. Okay. Yeah. I remember because our school's district was a little bit weird. So we had like kindergarten through second grade as one school cuz they they had two middle schools and they made one big middle school for my entire uh town. And then took one of the other middle schools and made it into like this intermediate school. So okay. that was only through th third through fifth grade. So instead of like K through five, like most elementary schools are, we had two schools broken up. So we had K through two and then three to five. So when I went to third grade, I'm pretty sure it was third, third or fourth grade. Sure. Um, that now I was had to choose between band, orchestra or choir. Oh, tough choice. Tough choice. Not for me. I can't sing with anything. <laughs> this is why I represent artists and I don't perform. I can't sing for anything. And I don't think even string instruments was even like on my radar, to be perfectly honest. It just, yeah. my, my family was very band based. So but between my parents and also my aunt and uncle were both band teachers too. So band geeks for life, you band know? geeks for life. Like it was already in my blood or at that point in time. So band was already the, the, I knew that was going to be where I was going into, but then what instrument to play. And at that point I was only playing piano, which I like to joke, can't take the piano with me. So I had to choose. Yeah, something about that. a portable instrument really makes a difference, right? Yeah. It kind of helps when you're, you know, <laughs> going around to different classes. <laughs> oh my God. So anyway, um, so, you know, pick the trumpet. Right. And Started with trumpet. Band Geeks for Life did that whole thing all the way up through high school. And um, summer before my senior year um, at Brophy, um, no less, um, I wanted to be the pep band student conductor. And this was a big deal. I was like, you know, I'll, I talked to the music 
teachers. I was like, I'll do whatever I need to do. I want to be the student conductor. And they said, okay, you have to teach a grade school jazz class. It's like a summer school course, which I was like, okay, cool. Sounds great. I'm excited about that. Um, got there first day and the teacher who was supposed to be helping me, um, was actually, I think she had just given birth to her kid. She had been pregnant, like all the way up until that point and was like, Oh, sorry. I have my baby. You're all on your own for the most part now. So here I was teaching this jazz class and, um, <clears throat> there were eight guitar players, eight guitar players. And I knew nothing about guitar. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Brass woodwind percussion. Wow. I'm all over it. I can do that. But when it comes to guitar, I was clueless. And so after that first day, um, I went home and I was like telling my parents about it. And I'm like, Oh, I don't know what to do for these guitar kids. I just, I don't know how to, you know, do it. And my dad was like, you know what? I have a guitar up in the attic. Let me get that down. And from that point on, I was like, made it my mission. I'm going to learn how to play guitar. I'm going to learn these parts better than these kids so that I can actually show them, okay, this is how you do it. And I loved it. I fell in love immediately because a, I could sing and play at the same time. B that portability factor was great. As you well know, I took that guitar with me everywhere. Yep. Took it to every class um, throughout my senior year, took it in college uh, to all my classes, took it to the, you know, grocery store, movie theater. I didn't care. I just loved playing guitar. And um, I kind of knew at that point I had I had some really good friends um, who were learning guitar. And one of them actually started learning bass and, um, we started playing together and we fell in love with the red hot chili peppers. That was our gateway drug into rock and roll. Um, and then maybe a little bit of cake spritzed in there. Cause you know, the trumpet love kind of like, you know, um, but so started playing in like this little, so my first band ever, very first band before 42 eternal not many people know this this is a deep cut called army of and then it was just an a line it was oh it like, was a, like a blank like a fill like in the, the blank. blank army of fill in the blank and our the <laughs> this was my idea this is my marketing strategy is as we grow fans like on our facebook page or whatever the the blank becomes that number and so the army keeps growing bigger and bigger <laughs> You know, that actually is not that bad of an idea. That's actually really cool. I like that. Didn't go too, didn't get too big. I'll tell you <laughs> right now. So army of eight. But um, yeah. And then um, when college happened, that's when I met Dan and, um, you know, through our mutual friend, Chris and uh, Derek and all the 42 people. Um and then finally got in my first like legit band that was getting signed to a label and everything. 
You know, that's so funny because you joined the band not too long after I came I came about and signed on to 42 Eternal. So it's kind of funny how those things worked out that that you joining 40, 42 was right around that same time that I met uh, Dan and Derek. And actually, I, I met I knew 42 Eternal through Derek. So it's interesting yeah. how, how uh, our paths are crossed in that way. The ASU connection. Inter- right. So, so how did you, how did you meet Dan? So, um, our good friend, Chris Price, who's a filmmaker and, uh, I was going to ASU for film. So that's how I met Chris. Um, he was making a film to get into the ASU program and, uh, he put a call out for extras and, um, he and I, kind of got along because he happened to have his Nintendo DS in class. And I was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to get along me and him. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'll come, I'll, I'll come be an extra in your movie. And, um, his film, uh, was set in the backyard of this house and there was a pool and, and basically like a party was happening. So all the extras were just kind of like milling around the pool and like hanging out. And, you know, for anyone who knows extra work, there's a lot of sitting around and waiting for things to get set up and shots to be ready and whatever. So, you, you know, you're just sitting there kind of getting to know these people. And um, so Dan was actually the star of that film. He was, he was the lead role. So I wasn't talking as much to him, but Derek and um, our friend Matt at the time. And um, who else was there? I think Megan was there. I want to say Megan was there. Um, But I started talking to these people who were kind of their own little friend group. um, And at the end of the the filming process is when I finally kind of got to chat with Dan a little bit more and he found out that I played guitar I can't I may have even brought my guitar I wouldn't have been surprised if I, I would be I, surprised either to be honest I have to ask Dan or, or Derek if they remember but um they found out I was a guitar player and Dan gave me um I think he gave me a confession. I think that's the C- the CD he gave me. He's like, "Hey, by the way, I have a band. Uh, if you like music, you should check it out." And um, so I listened to that EP. Thought it was pretty cool. And I, again, my memory is now hazy, but I want to say that he mentioned, like, you know, like, "Hey, like, if you ever want to get together and jam sometime," I can't remember if it was then or uh, another time that we hung out afterward, but it was pretty shortly thereafter that I went to uh, Francisco Studios with Derek and Dan, and we had our first little jam. And then they invited me like, hey, do you think you'd want to play guitar in 42 Eternal? We're getting signed. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny because so as that it was as you were meeting with uh, Dan and Derek and Megan, who were the the uh, three of the four members of 42 eternal mm-hmm. and so at the same token i or probably around that time met derek through asu as well but we shared the same recording studio class 
And right. at the time, I had this website called Indie Radio, which if uh, anybody listening, you know I talked about this a little bit before. And so we had the website, and I literally begged Derek for months to put the music up because we we went to a studio. I remember this. We went did a field trip to a recording studio, and he played um, songs off of the EP, and I just loved it so much. And so Derek gave me – he had a copy on, on hand, so he gave me a copy. And literally that was on repeat for like at least a month or so. I had that EP on repeat. I loved it so much. Yeah. And so I asked Derek like every class, every single time, hey, did you upload the music yet? Hey, did you upload the music yet? I kept on asking him. And then finally at the end of the semester, he did it. And it was like the most exciting thing in the world to me. I was so excited that you put it up on on the website. And then then come a year later when – when I decided with uh, my business partner, Zach, to start A20 Records, we signed this band called Click 60, which was a pop punk band. And they they were the first artists we really had, a uh, first band, I will say, on the label. And then I found out through MySpace that they were friends with 42 Eternal. And that kind of gave me a reason to reach back out because I, I didn't even think about it. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I love 42 Eternal so much. And that's when I reached back out to Derek again and started drumming up a conversation about uh, bringing on board 42 Eternal, which would essentially lead to where we are now in this part of the story. That's right. <laughs> no, so, that was... Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You go. I was just going to say that was that was such a cool time because, I mean, like, I was, I was really excited because it was like... I had never played, like, a show at a venue prior to that point. Like, wow. I had played like little one-off things. Like I begged the Biltmore mall people to let army of fill in the blank, go play like some Christmas songs, which there is a video of this and it's not, not great. (laughs) I'm going to find this. I'm going to find this. It's not online. I'll tell you, but I, I have it. It's, it exists. And, uh, So that was like one of the first shows I ever did. But like other than that, and then I think like we did some like little like house stuff, like we would play for like family friends as parties or whatever. But I had never played a show. And so this band to me, you know, like they were living the dream. They were playing shows. They were, you know, they had an EP and an album recorded and released. They were getting signed to this local record label. So I was just this like, you know, doe-eyed newbie who was just like, all right, let's go. What do we got to do? How do we do it? You know, like I'm here, I'm ready. Do you remember the first show that you played with 42 Eternal? I want to say the first show that I ever did with them. I'm pretty positive it was... Modified arts. Was yeah. it the Hall- was it the Halloween show? It wasn't the Halloween show. We've okay. had a couple shows under our belt before then, but um, I think even what happened was uh, the first time I ever played with them. Dan said, "Hey, come to the show and hang out in the audience, and then at this certain song near the end." 
or, or like maybe it was like a couple songs that they had taught me how to play. I think it was like um, a cover of uh, uh, the Beatles song off Sgt. Pepper's. It's the second one. It's Billy Shears. Um, why can't I think of it right now? I don't know either. This is very embarrassing for both of us. It is. It's terrible. Um, <laughs> Everybody's listening. If you want to, you can go to Daphne and Blitch's <laughs> Facebook page or social media and 8020 Records, and then you can give us crap about not knowing our Beatles. Please give us all the crap. Um, any <laughs> with a little help from my friends. There we go. Okay. Yeah. So, oh my god. Why can't we? We could figure the most popular Terrible. one of the most popular Terrible. ones. Oh jeez. And um, then it was, I want to say like too weird, too normal, probably. And so he like guest invited me up to play those songs. And then um, I think after that, we did like another show where I got to play like with the band and we did the whole thing. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was a good time. Yeah, it was. I guess it was not too then far after that because uh, the reason why I was mentioning the Halloween show is that the, mm-hmm. that was the very first show that A20 Records ever put on was a Halloween show at Modified Arts. Yeah. Oh, that was a good time. That was a great show in my history books for sure. You know, it was funny because that still to this day is one of my favorite shows that, that we ever have done. It was so... It was. It felt so low key, but I mean, we packed out, modified, like we, we literally sold out, modified, and everyone had such a good time. I remember we did a costume contest where if people came, they can. We actually had Rock Band two because it literally came out that year, so we had Rock Band two full set, and we had everybody sign it. You know, all the bands that were performing were signing it as the prize. And honestly, I never put on a show before, so I had no idea what to expect. And we had the majority of people coming out in costume for this thing. And uh, so I, I couldn't have been more happier. I mean, it was such everyone had such a blast and it was such a successful show. That was it was such a good time. And I remember distinctly um, my costume was garbage because I am what <laughs> I'll say I was. I've definitely grown a fondness for it in my later years, but I was a Halloween hater and didn't care about dressing up, didn't care about costumes. I would always wait till the very end of, you know, like, oh, the day before or the day of to put anything together. And they were like, yeah, no, it's a, it's a costume show. Like you got to dress up. And I'm like, I got nothing. I'm pretty sure I literally went to Goodwill the night of bought a tuxedo shirt with Christmas trees on it and some pants that I didn't give a shit about. And they poured fake blood on me so that I was like supposed to be a zombie. But I said, Oh yeah, I'm the ghost of Christmas past. (laughs) I remember that. That was great. It was real bad, but Hey, you know, (laughs) you you took one, you took one for the team, right? That's right. So being being I guess essentially your second band but the the we'll say in this case the first band first that really first legit band the first we'll call legit the first real fair. band first legit band um what was one of the main lessons that you've learned from your experience with 42 Eternal Man um I definitely learned quite a few lessons about you know just being on stage interacting with a crowd um having 
like what was cool about 42 eternal is like there were super fans like there were legit fans and seeing how dan uh interacted with them and you know like they had i think back at that time there actually was like a street team and stuff there was and um like you know getting that stuff going on on that like grassroots level was something i'd never seen before so that was definitely a learning experience watching dan and everybody else work with that um definitely learned a lot about playing live you know got my sea legs as far as knowing what that experience entails on a semi-professional level um and i'm trying to think what else i mean a lot of it's just kind of like the the stuff you know that you'd get from just playing shows and and doing it we i uh, learned some things about photo shoots and like you know what works and doesn't work for for that um and then also learned some things that um I think more learned after the fact. I think I was more aware after the fact, um, but about band politics and, you know, um, finding the voice and the direction for the project. Because um, I think, you know, Dan had a very clear vision for what the band was. And I think I came in with some ideas that, um, I was very vocal and enthusiastic about, but I'm not necessarily sure they were what maybe it was best for the band, but Dan humored me. You know, I think the fact that he was willing to like, you know, Hey, let's try it out. I think he, he sensed my enthusiasm and my willingness to like put forth ideas and, and stuff, you know, um, allowed me to, test the waters in that way. Absolutely. So then moving on from 42 Eternal, after the band has uh, broken up, um, there was a little bit of a, uh, a period of time where you still were in Phoenix. Um, but let's talk, I would like to talk more about moving out to Los Angeles. Yeah. So, yeah, right. So, yeah, talk more about that. What made you make a decision to move out to L.A.? Well, um, one of the big things was I had two really good friends who uh, had mentioned they were going. Oh, uh, who, who would these people be by a chance? <laughs> well, uh, the infamous and aforementioned Chris Price was one of them, mm -hmm. um, who he and I had become pretty, pretty tight during college. And um, there was also this gentleman uh, who I had developed a deep bond with over uh, our music uh, endeavors together and our love of Magic the Gathering together uh, named Michael Zimmerlich. And uh, I was pretty excited that, um, you know, they had mentioned they were going out to L.A. and wondered if I wanted to come with. Um, and I was this is important to note. I was one semester away from graduating college. I didn't even know that. Actually, I, I did know that. I did know that. Yeah. Yep. I, 
I remember I having just... this conversation with Chris about it too. I remember because at that point in time, uh, you know, A20 Records wasn't doing so well at that point. Uh, there was a band that, that uh, we had to part ways with. And so really didn't know what direction to go next. And I remember Chris came over to my apartment and we're just having a casual chat. And Chris being, you know, uh, a filmmaker knew at some point he needs to go out to LA. And so he t- asked me if I would be interested in moving out with him. And so we talked about it and I got really excited about that fact. I was ready for uh, a different chapter in my life at this point in time. And then I mentioned to him, like, we should you talk to Daphne and see if she would be interested as well. And uh, that's how it came on board. And I do remember the fact that you had one more semester to go and you're like, eh, no, don't worry about it. Like, we're like, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, well, whatever. It's fine. The and thing the that first, really you beat us out there too. You actually moved out there even before. I did. We I was ready. I was ready and I was primed. Here's the thing that really like, I think for me, uh, was the straw that broke the camel's back. The year before that final semester, before you uh, guys, you know, offered this proposition to me to move out there, one of the um, guest speakers that the ASU Film School had was a uh, big name producer for, I want to say it was either Paramount or Universal Pictures or something like that, like big deal. And um, so I went to this, uh, you know, event where he was speaking and the bottom line of his entire hour to two hour presentation that he gave was quit school, move out to LA or New York and start making film. If you're serious about film, do it. Wow. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your money. If you want to be in it, if you want to do it, just do it. And that was kind of a wake up call to me. That made me very much consider, you know, because I also had this love of music that I had been kind of like putting on the back burner a little bit um, because I was just trying to get through film school. Um, And I love film. But as time went on, I knew in my heart of hearts that music was my real passion. So when I had had that message, I also, my scholarship was, had run out. I had a scholarship for a free ride for four years. So I did four years of college. And in order to graduate, I had to go to one more semester for two classes but that would have cost me at least six grand, if not a little bit more to finish that. And I said, is this film degree really gonna help me? And I will say there are definitely times when I think about finishing the degree, but do I regret that decision? Never, not once. So now moving out to Los Angeles, because this was interesting because the three of us you you had an uncle out there that you knew, but basically yep. the rest of us did not know anybody out in Los Angeles. So other than maybe some other ASU folks who had moved out there, Chris and right. I had that connection. Yeah, there were a couple. There was a handful of people that were acquaintances or fellow classmates, but for the most mm-hmm. part, we didn't. You know, there was no family out there. There's no close nope. friends or anything like that that was nope, out nope. there. And 
but I think for me, at least, I knew having the trio of us moving out together was enough of a support system that I needed. And at the time, I also had a full-time job that was fully remote, so I knew I had a stable job moving out to Los Angeles. So for me, there was there really was no reason, there was nothing holding me to back from being able to move. And I thought right. that was a very exciting proposition. Mm-hmm. So now we're now the three of us are out in Los Angeles. Um, you are also now getting uh, jobs, um, you know, doing uh, guitar repair and um, learning about amps and all those different types of things too, um, to essentially start, you know, building not only your technical skills, right? For is that the reason? One of the reasons why you got those kind of jobs? Definitely. Well, so. <laughs> Believe it or not, I don't know if you remember this, but I transferred out to LA on a GameStop job. Yep. And um, I had transferred to a GameStop in Burbank at the Burbank Mall. And I left for LA in February to like interview with the manager. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to stay out here. And I had that uncle who, uh, you know, Uncle Steve, thank you so much for giving me the landing pad to get my bearings out in L.A. But I used that month. Um, I wrote a ton of music. I started going around Hollywood Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard, checking out all the music shops and just like kind of seeing what was out there, what was available. And um, GameStop took almost that entire month of February to do anything about transferring me. So while I was sitting there kind of like twiddling my thumbs, I said, let's start applying to places that have to do with music in Los Angeles, because that seems like the right maneuver if I'm serious about trying to do music in L.A. and got very lucky with a gig at the Carvin Hollywood store um, where the manager at the time was leaving and it was a store of only three employees. And I was fortunate enough to fill that third slot after he left. He, he called me. I remember specifically, I was on Sunset Boulevard. I think I had just walked out of the Mesa Boogie shop down the street just a little bit. And he called me and was like, hey, um, you know, I liked your resume. Could you come back in? I want to chat with you. And he liked, I guess he liked how I vibed with them when I was like just hanging out talking and like asking for resume or asking for a application and all that stuff. And um, he was like, I want to give you the job. You know, you're the one, you're the candidate that stood out and uh, got along with the crew. And I'm actually, I'm moving over to the Mesa Boogie store. I'm going to work over there. So crazy happenstance that definitely changed the course of my music trajectory. Because if it wasn't for Carvin, I wouldn't have met uh, the first member of Statues of Cats. And he wouldn't have introduced me to the drummer. And... Yeah, so maybe let's talk more about that. So, uh, yeah, so how how did Statues got got formed? So you met 
Um, who was it that you met at, at Carvin? So actually across the street from the Carvin Hollywood store was the guitar center, the big Hollywood guitar center. And, you know, there was stuff that Carvin didn't have that I needed. So I'd go over to guitar center all the time. And, uh, I I'm a bit of a pedal nerd. So I would go back to the accessories department and I'd always play around with different pedals and try to get weird sounds and stuff. And there was this, uh, guy named Johnny who, uh, was also a bit of a pedal nerd and, uh, liked trying to solve the interesting challenges that I was, you know, like, Oh, I'm trying to get, you know, like this kind of like bit crushy sound, like, you know, what do you have any suggestions or recommendations? And he would come over and tinker and try to see what he could come up with. And he always had some cool, uh, ideas and ways to accomplish these things. So I took note of that and he eventually came over to the Carvin shop and ended up buying uh, a Carvin amp from me because we had formed this, you know, bond through Guitar Center Carvin. And um, he, I saw him on my way to San Diego to visit the Carbon headquarters. Cause I was at the time trying to like, uh, earn favor with the Carbon uh, people that be. Uh, so I was like going down to the headquarters to participate in the, the, you know, meetings and stuff and wanted to go to NAM, volunteered to go to NAM, be the Hollywood representative and stuff. So I'm on the freeway and I looked to my left and shirtless in his red Jeep, blasting, you know, probably like Iron Maiden or something, you know, pretty, pretty loud on the freeway. I just see this guy, Johnny Mocktig, bopping his head. And I'm like, that's that guy. That's that guy from Guitar Center who's the pedal nerd. And I texted him because I saw him, I'm like, were you on the freeway driving to San Diego? And he replied later that night. It's like, yeah, that was me. And I'm like, yeah, I saw you, you know, like bopping <laughs> to some music, we should jam. And that was finally what did it. That, that text um, was what finally got us to meet, to meet up. I want to say like the next week or something. It was pretty shortly afterward. And um, I liked what, you know, he was doing, I liked what he had to offer. And I was like, you know, I'm trying to start this project. Um, he's like, cool. I know some people, I might know a bass player, might know a drummer. And then we set up a jam and, um, the, the drummer, we didn't end up, uh, the, you know, keeping the bass player, but, um, the drummer happened to be Anthony Salazar. And uh, I was told ahead of time that he was also a Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. So I knew that he and I would probably get along. So that worked out. Exactly. Yep. Always the Chili Peppers. I mean, that's part of, like, partly where we connected, too, because I'm a huge Chili Peppers fan, too. So yeah, a lot of it comes down to the RHCP. It does. Uh, so and then for the bass player, then uh, who did you end up uh, getting for the playing bass well so we were without a bass player for a little bit 
um, I want to say at least two, three weeks, maybe a month where we were trying to figure it out. The bass player who jammed with us was very good, very talented, but um, his passion was actually the other band that Johnny and Anthony were in at the time, TM87. Um, so that just didn't kind of work out. Um, but lo and behold, I knew a bass player who happened to be moving out to LA from Arizona by the name of Dan Rojas. Which and for everyone listening at this point, just to rewind a little bit here is was yes. the lead singer for 42 eternal. And, um, we had Dan out to play. I asked him, I was like, Hey man, you know, like excited to have you out here. Would you be interested at all in playing some music with me and some guys that I met out here? You know, I'm starting a new project. We're looking for a bass player. And, uh, he's like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds good. That sounds pretty, pretty nice. And he made it very clear because he had come out to do acting. He's like, you know, I don't know how, you know, like what level of involvement I'd be able to be. Um, but I can definitely be like your Ringo star. Like I can come in, I can do the parts. I can play the parts. I can be at rehearsals. I can do all that stuff. Um, and if that's cool, then great. And we had one jam with Anthony and uh, Johnny and Dan and myself all together. I think we jammed for like an hour or two. He left. And I always love telling this moment, but like Johnny and Anthony, I think, looked at each other. And then they looked at me and they were like, yeah, he's the guy. <laughs> he's definitely the guy. That's so awesome. Yeah. So now Statues of Cats has now been formed. What are the differences that you realize now when you're starting to get this project off the ground in comparison to, you know, being a band in Phoenix? What were the differences between being a band in Phoenix in comparison to being a band in Los Angeles? Well, interestingly enough, um, you know, one of the main differences for me was this was my project. You know, like I was the one who started this. I was kind of steering the ship at the time. I was doing the booking. I was trying to, you know, like build the social media presence and all that kind of stuff. So I had the freedom to kind of go out and find things, you know, like I would just um, ask around or maybe Johnny or Anthony, because they were in um, school at the time going to Musicians Institute. So they had like connections too. The people who knew, you know, what venues were going and happening. And um, I also had a little bit of, uh, you know, scouting myself, just playing by myself. I did like a lot of solo acoustic, played Universal Bar and Grill plenty of times, get my foot in the door. And, um, you know, I think that when it's your own kind of ship and you're in charge of steering it um there's a lot of freedom there and i just like when you're in la you know i i didn't have the benefit of being in that position in arizona but i think i could even tell you know from the little that i gleaned from being in 42 that there's a lot more opportunity out in la than there is in arizona there were a lot more venues a lot more musicians lot more people to network with. And, um, you know, if you're decent 
by any stretch um, and you play a couple shows, usually either the venue is going to say, hey, that was great. You know, like, why don't you come on back? Or maybe one of the other bands likes you and said, that was super fun. Loved playing with you. Do you want to hop onto this show? And honestly, a good chunk of uh, everything that happened with statues was just kind of following that slipstream, just like going with the flow of taking opportunities anytime they presented themselves and just being willing to like go for it. So then let's talk about the EP because the band released their debut EP, which I believe if and correct me if I'm wrong, is the first time you were actually in the recording studio. Yes. That's so, the first time I was in like, again, a legit, a recording legit, studio. legit. Yeah. We'll rephrase to a legitimate recording studio. And especially because it's now your own project. So can you talk right. a little bit about more about the experience being in the recording studio, recording VP? Well, so, um, recording the EP was a really fun process for me. Um, so Anthony, one of Anthony's instructors, um, at Musicians Institute was opening a recording studio and needed artists to, uh, you know, to record, to have a catalog of things that they'd worked on and could show. And so he was a super cool guy to work with. Um, and just in case anyone's curious, um, you should check out Ultimate Rhythm Studios. Uh, Charlie Waymeyer is the guy. He's still going strong, still doing lots of cool stuff in LA. Super cool dude. I met him a couple of times. Yep. Definitely check him out. Um, and, um, you know, he just vibed really well with the band. He, he got what we were going for and he wanted to do things live room, which was what I really wanted. I wanted to capture the magic of what we were able to do on stage and just put that on a record. And the fact that he was enthusiastic about that and excited about it made it really easy to work with him. Um, I think, you know, because it was my first time, um, I, I honestly just tried things, you know, like, um, I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted out of each song and would, uh, tell that to Charlie at any given point in time, like, Hey, you know, like for Valley of the sun, um, I want the song to start out with the sound effect of like blowing on an NES cartridge, trying to put it in the NES console, shutting the lid and powering up the TV. And he's like, okay, sure. We'll figure that out. You know, like we'll do that in mastering. Um, or like, um, I mean, even like vocal editing was, uh, it actually, Charlie was really good to me because he helped, he helped me feel like I was doing a good job. Um, a lot of times, like um, he liked the fact that when I would sing, let's like when I was recording the vocals for some of the songs, 
um, he was like, you perform it. You know, you're, you're not just giving like a vocal performance. You're not just trying to go for like the clarity and the pristine, perfect, you know, vocal performance. Like you, uh, your whole body is giving that performance and I love it. And like that kind of stuff, like really built my ego up to go like, okay, I guess I kind of know what I'm doing. Like kind of. Um, and with like vocal editing and stuff, you know, like I remember distinctly, he would be like, okay, here's this song, you know, what about this moment? You know? And I would be like, can we just move this, uh, you know, improvisation like back, just like a, a hair and then he'd move it and I'd be like, perfect. And he'd be in, and like, it would be like a lot of little micro edits like that. And he'd be like, you really know what you want. And that again, just like made me feel good. I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I, that's a good thing when you're producing a record. Um, and I just had a crew of really incredible musicians, you know, Anthony, Dan and Johnny were all killer in the studio, all pros came in, banged it out. And we um, got, got it done relatively quick. It was a five day, I think it was three days of recording, two days mixing and mastering. Yeah, and that I, was that was pretty quick. I remember Charlie was really nice. I'm pretty sure there was like a couple extra days of mixing mastering at the end there, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think there might have been. But yeah, I was I was very impressed on how quickly of a turnaround uh because of the fact that how many songs were was on that EP? Was it four five song EP? Four five five song EP. Yeah. So five songs in basically a week's time frame. That's pretty quick. Yeah. And that definitely set the tone and the bar for any future recording experiences that I ever had is I was like, that's how it is. You go in, you bang it out, you know, you have a good idea of what you want in the beginning and gets done super quick. Um, which was super cool and exciting for me. The thing that I learned from that experience though, is definitely making sure you have your money situation in order, which we were in a bad situation where we had finished recording basically. And it was time to pay Charlie. And he's like, okay. Huh? And we had not finished our crowdfunding campaign. That's right. I remember that. Yep. Which we were doing with 8020 Records. That's right. And it, again, first time thing for us. Um, definitely flying by the seat of our pants a little bit. Uh, just trying to muddle our way through. Made, you know, like the teaser video about it, inviting everyone to call to action. Um, and, you know, did a couple tiny videos uh, in the middle of it. And we're just like doing a lot of calling and texting and emailing and asking for money and help and everything. But that feeling of like, oh no, we don't have the money ready to pay the person who just did us a huge solid felt really bad. And I knew that I never wanted to be in that situation ever again. So that yeah. was a big lesson learned. Yeah, it's funny because that was, I think, the second or third campaign, uh, crowdfunding campaign that we were doing as a label. And uh, so learning pretty quickly that it takes time 
not only to run the campaign itself, but also to receive the funds may take a little bit of time afterwards yep. as well. And you have to take those things into consideration. Now, yep. fortunately, in Statues of Cats uh, instance, that you you uh, the band in as a whole did a fantastic job promoting that campaign, and it was a successful campaign. In fact, it raised over what you were asking for. So yep. it got it brought in the money. It, it brought in the money, fortunately, but also the band was banking on that money coming in to do the recording. Yeah. So scary. <laughs> yeah, it was a very. It was a very. I remember that it was a very a lot of moment. pressure. There was a lot of pressure because literally you're in the studio recording as the crowdfunding campaign was happening at the same time. Uh, Please same time. pay for this. Please <laughs> pay for this. Yeah, that was the. It was we had plan A and no plan B, and that was definitely a le- lesson learned. And I've always. Um, that was something that I've learned as well through that experience was that yeah, never again is it if a band is relying on funds to come in. Make sure that you have a hundred percent of the funds ahead of time, even if because I know some producers will ask for maybe even half up front, uh, then right. half at the end, or they may yeah. just ask for it all at the end, or maybe all of it up front. And I always tell bands nowadays, like, no, we're not, you know, unless you are a hundred and ten percent sure that money is going to come in during the that period of time between when you put down the deposit and the end, just you, don't put that just, pressure on. <laughs> yeah, just don't don't put that pressure on. It's not worth it. Just maybe wait a little bit longer, get the money into the bank account, and then go ahead and and pay them. Because you yep. do not want to put yourself in the position where your producer, like you said, who's doing all this work for you, and now you're in a position where you are unable to pay them on time. Yep. No, it's never it's never ever worth it. Even if you're if you if you know it's going to be coming down the line, just wait a little while. You can wait yep. a little while, wait a couple months, whatever the case is, raise that money and then go into the studio. And this way you don't have to, because I'm sure also that, you know, fortunately it was a great, you know, a fantastic EP, but I'm sure that was on your minds and was stressful for the whole band, knowing that you're recording and you're still trying to raise the money for the recordings that you currently are doing. Ah, uh, yeah. Not good. Not good. But <laughs> not fortunately... Good, Fortunately, Charlie was paid. Everyone was everyone was happy at the end. The EP yep. came out. It was a fantastic EP. Yep. So during this time, I do want to um, shift gears a little bit here. And, sure. Uh, during this time, while you're uh, working on Statues of Cats, um, was uh, during your period of your tr- uh, gender transition. So can you talk a little bit? Uh, can you talk? Actually, talk a lot about that, actually. So can you talk more sure. about your gender <laughs> transition? <laughs> So, um, one of the things that was also big, I didn't mention this before, but definitely a big pull for me to want to go out to LA was, um, I through some of high school, um, and all of college was really starting to come to grips with, um, some gender identity questions that I had for myself um, was was doing a lot of repressing uh, feelings. Um, And in an environment where a lot of my close friends and family um, were pretty conservative and did not feel like a healthy or comfortable space for me to uh, explore my identity. 
um, and basically had identified as a cross-dresser for, um, a, you know, basically that time um, in the end of high school, college, um, and when I went out to LA, it was, it was nice because in some ways, um, Phoenix and Arizona, even though it's a, a big city, um, if you know a decent amount of people, there are only so many places that people like to go and hang out in Arizona. And you see those people on a semi-regular basis, just running into them out in the wild. And so I wanted, you know, a brand new city where I didn't really know anybody to um, explore and um, see what these feelings meant to me. Um, and at the time, transgender was not a word that was quite yet in the public lexicon. It was not yet fully embraced as a thing in the way that it is now. Um, you know, I'd say within the last five, six, maybe seven years, it's really, um, you know, kind of exploded in terms of public consciousness, people knowing what transgender is, transgender folks coming out and being public and, and people being able to say, you know, I know someone who's transgender or that they are themselves. And so I was still in this like dark ages of like, there's not a lot of information online. There's not really many role models out there to look at and go, okay, this is what it's like to be transgender or even to, to feel like that's an identity that I could align myself with at that point. So um, a lot of it was um, sort of really tiptoeing my way out of the closet uh, fortunately, with my two really good friends and roommates who were very supportive and uh, willing to let me be myself around them, um, I definitely have a very um, distinct memory of uh, wearing a set of like Victoria's Secret pajamas, like nothing scandalous, nothing like crazy, just some like long sleeve and long pant pajamas that had like some cute cartoon panels on them. Um, and I was so nervous about coming outside of the room for you and Chris to see. And it took me like a couple minutes to like muster up that courage to be like, okay, hi. <laughs> but like, that's where I was, you know, at the, at that point in my life where I just like, I was not comfortable expressing my femininity in front of anybody. And, um, you know, that sort of graduated to, um, I remember, you know, going by myself, um, out, uh, where I actually like, you know, I would go to, uh, makeup, uh, stores where I would ask folks, to help me out with makeup or like, how do I cover up a beard or like things like that? 
Um, and I think I remember going out uh, with you once or twice, um, just like, you know, having a friend uh, out in the wild. Um, and then finally started to get myself connected with the LGBT community and um, the center specifically in LA uh, was really valuable to me. Um, there's a lot of really great resources for any, anybody in the LGBT community, but you know, for trans folks, um, there are a lot of groups you can participate in, support groups, networking groups, um, you know, access to things like counseling and help with your, uh, you know, paperwork, gender transition paperwork, when it comes to like getting your name changed and et cetera, et cetera. But so I finally found that and uh, through a networking group that I was a part of um, and getting to talk to and hear other uh, trans folks talk, um, I started really being able to ask myself some really hard questions and about, you know, Am I comfortable identifying as a, you know, like a cross-dressing male or is there more that I'm not letting myself express? And um, I definitely remember there were a few nights when I think I was just sort of thinking about the future and what I wanted for myself and uh, I was working at um, Studio Instrument Rentals in LA, a cool rental house that gave me a lot of experience and opportunities to network as well. Um, and in the, one of the rooms in the, the building, there was this poster of Katy Perry, and she was wearing this highlighter yellow um, bikini and a clear plastic trench coat. And she was getting like splashed with water and she was just like making this cute pose and face and everything. And I, I just remember that night going home and being like, I don't imagine a future for myself as a male. I, I didn't see that. But I did as a female and that thought gave me a lot of joy and um, pretty sure that's when I decided that like I, I wanted to transition and I wanted to pursue the medical side of things. Um, and that was right around the time that we were releasing the EP that that was happening. That was, um, it was a really like high point for me. And also like there were some really pretty bad lows at that time. And um, I was struggling with, how I wanted to sort of come out in the band 
Um, I was wondering how, I think one of the questions that got in my way a lot uh, in terms of being willing to be open and be out was I was concerned about how my coming out would affect the band, affect my music career. You know, would it make things harder? And I think that I knew that the answer was yes in a lot of ways. Um, but I also knew that it was going to make a lot of things better for me personally, and that that was more valuable um, to me. And I had, I think at that point, started kind of sneaking things in to my stage uh, appearance. Like I definitely had like my nails painted, um, pretty regularly. Um, I would have like little pieces of jewelry and stuff, which like, you know, if you're in, if you're a rock and roller is not too outside of the norm. Um, but I definitely remember, I want to say the first time I ever like performed, I'd say as Daphne, um, I remember the outfit very distinctly. I had a cute little short brown bob wig. I had this black skirt that was like double layered, had like this little black uh, translucent layer. And I think I had some fishnets on. Um, and I think I wore a David Bowie t-shirt and a vest, I think. That sounds right. That sounds about right. I remember this actually. <laughs> yep. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I remember the show too. I pretty much, I'm pretty sure I remember the show. Is that the Black Rose Tavern? It was at the Black Rose Tavern. Yep. Yep. On that super high stage. And um, I think I like kind of was kind of on again, off again, or like sometimes maybe I wouldn't like wear a wig or be quite as like, full, fully, you know, trying to pass as a girl, quote unquote, um, and be a little bit more androgynous. Um, but then um, I know there was a point and I, honestly, this, I'm surprised, I can't think of when this would be, but there was definitely a point when I was like, I really don't wanna perform as a, as a guy anymore. I don't wanna do that. And um, we also, the more out I was, the more opportunities in the LGBTQ community we had, uh, which was really great and affirming for me. Um, we played trans pride pretty early on after I came out. Um, we, uh, played a lot of different LG, LGBTQ events all around the LA area. Um, and that was actually <laughs> our connection with some of those spaces like, um, uh, shoot, I'm having a hard time remembering, Heart of Art, the Heart of Art uh, Gallery where we recorded our live uh, video performance um, ground down memorabilia, um, 
you know, that those spaces were so affirming and helpful for me to really find myself and my identity, find how I wanted to present myself. Um, but I digress. Um, I'm trying to think what else, what else can I talk about? What else can I say? Well, it's interesting too, because, you know, I come from a very unique perspective because not only being the band's label represent, uh, representation, but at the same token too, you know, being one of my best friends and also being your roommate at the same token while yeah. you're exploring this about yourself. Uh, I, you know, looking back, back at it now, I realized how truly special that was for my, you know, as, as your friend, because I, you know, even in the beginning, I, I didn't really think about it that much. I'll be like, oh, okay. You're choosing to dress like this. It's, you know, at this point in time, I've been in the music industry for a couple of years now. So it's <laughs> like, you know, I've, I've seen things now. And so to me, what people, you know, dress like, you know, it doesn't, doesn't make a difference to me. It's like, oh, okay. That's, you know, different, but you know, if that's what you want to do, that's, that's cool by me. It doesn't make a difference. But right. then, um, but then as I saw witnessing you exploring your feelings and how do you want to identify yourself, I realized how important that was to you. And mm -hmm. it meant a lot more than just about, um, self-expression about the way that you dress. And it's more about the identity of who you are as a person. And once I realized that what, <laughs> You know, because I, I mean, I've never had any experience with any um, anybody who is transgender before um, before that point, let alone somebody who's going through that experience, like before my very eyes. So I didn't really understand, like I didn't understand what you're exactly going through, but I knew you were my friend and you were going through something. And so for me, it was more about just making sure that you were comfortable about who you are, because that's personally that's all I ever cared you know I for any of my friends you know is all I ever cared about so um yeah I remember a couple of times like we went out like we went out to like you know a couple of venues and bars and things like that while you know while you're you're uh you know dressed um you know very feminine and mm -hmm. making sure that you felt com like that you had somebody that you felt safe around that you could be comfortable about who you wanted to become and um so it was very for me it uh it was interesting because, you know, it's, it's like anything else. It's like when you find something very, uh, very intimate about somebody, uh, I personally feel it makes you closer to that person. So um, I definitely felt that we became closer friends because I've seen what you were going through and that in what, you know, what your feelings were and were trying to explore. And um that's something that I will always cherish is, is being, being there for you. Um, but just in general, just be, being a part, part of, you know, while you're going through that experience. Well, I think that, you know, in some ways I take for granted the fact that I was in a position where I had an ally, a friend who was supportive as my label rep at the time, you know, cause like that, that was definitely one thing that did create certain complications in my life, uh, in terms of like my day job and stuff, um, caused friction. And, um, you know, I didn't have to worry about that with my record label and, you know, 
that means a lot to me. <laughs> so did you, uh, I, I know that you, you know, there were some, uh, situations that were very challenging while you were going through this. Um, uh, what other, was there any other challenges that you faced more specifically within, not necessarily within the band itself, but just with the band in general and things that you're trying to do? Do you find that people were, uh, treating you differently or acting differently around you, especially when you were representing statues of cats? Well, you know, what was interesting is I feel like it was, there were things and then there were other things that were not. Um, and in, in some ways that's a positive, in some ways it was a negative. Um, I think in a lot of ways, personally, I didn't want to be treated different. You know, I didn't want anyone to think of me necessarily like any differently than they had before. Um, other than I was asking for a different name and pronouns and, I think in some ways, um, I was, because I had a certain comfortability with certain aspects of my, uh, gender presentation that were more androgynous or, you know, like if I didn't wear hair, say on one day or didn't wear makeup or whatever, um, I would get read as a male and still sort of benefit from my male privilege in some ways, which can be a double-edged sword I've discovered. Um, it's, you know, I guess useful in some ways, because I mean, I've, I've lived life as a straight male and it's just easier. It is easier in some ways, in a lot of ways than living life as a trans woman. And you do get treated differently. Um, and it's like the way it's a double-edged sword is like, yeah, you want those benefits because everyone should be treated that way. Everyone should be treated that way, regardless of gender, regardless of identity, regardless of any of that. But there's also a little part of me that I think I wasn't able to hear until probably a couple of years ago that maybe didn't want that and maybe in a, it, it's, it's complicated because I don't want people to like discriminate against me for being a woman, for being a trans woman, for any of those things. But it's also weirdly affirming to be um, treated differently in that way. And, um, it's something that I've really wrestled with, uh, since coming out where it's, it's a strange desire to like, when, 
One of the best examples I can think of is, um, and I'm sure any, uh, or we'll say most women can probably relate to this. When um, your mom or family member or so-and-so, you're, you're at dinner or something with them and you order, you know, like maybe you want a burger and fries and they go, maybe you should get the salad. And you're like, okay. <laughs> it's annoying in some ways where, you know, like that shouldn't be a thing that anyone has to deal with, but there's this weird little bit of validation that, you know, like when, when they were thinking of me as a guy, I, I never got those comments, but for some reason it's gives me this weird little sense of affirmation when they treat me in this different way. And, um, so I don't know, it's been a lot of that with the music industry. Like there have been certain instances where, um, I think I just get read as like not a female and, um, it sort of commands some more authority from certain people as fucked up as that is. But, um, it's definitely interesting to kind of see both sides of things. And, um, I guess it's just kind of a, a tool that any transgender person who, um, whether trans male or trans female, uh, maybe if they don't get read as their preferred gender all the time, sometimes you can utilize that to your benefit in certain ways. Um, and in my opinion, it's, it's kind of like, being a trans person comes with so much baggage and so many obstacles that you have to overcome that um, if there's a couple perks that you get out of it, I say, take them. That's probably good advice. That's my opinion. Speaking of which, um, is, is there any overall advice that you would like to give to um, any, any, uh, any person that is transgender, whether they are currently uh, transgender or going through that transition currently? Sure. I mean, like there are so many things that, um, I could say in, in that regard. I mean, I think the main lessons that I've learned and they've been long lessons to learn, um, is if you're like me and you feel like you're someone who can like take, take it, take a lot of things on your shoulders. You can really like suffer through, I guess. Um, don't, don't let that stop you from practicing self-care. Don't let things get in the way of you pursuing your own happiness because you're trying to people please, because you're trying to make sure everyone else is happy, everyone else is okay. 
Um, you know, I like to take care of everybody else. I like to make sure that everyone else has what they need or, you know, is doing okay. And in a lot of ways that keeps me from practicing that self-care and making sure that I'm all right. And I think that honestly, the past couple of years um, and this last one in particular has never more laser pointedly made me realize that if I don't practice self-care and if I don't take care of me and work on the things that are going to make me feel better overall and more comfortable um, in the long run, you're not going to be able to, to be a hundred percent able to take care of everybody else the way you want to. You're not going to be able to be there for everyone else the way you want to. If you're harboring stuff or you're, you're dealing with unresolved feelings about your identity or how you express yourself. Um, one of the things that I'm actually... <laughs> not doing as good a job as I uh, wanted to, but I've been really working on like my voice, which was something that was, has been probably the most difficult aspect of my gender transition that I've had to work on, um, is raising my voice's pitch. Um, I have moments when maybe I can, you know, kind of keep it up, keep it up here. And it's a process where you have to kind of get comfortable in that higher register for long enough until it like settles and then kind of maybe evens out with your uh, lower speaking voice. Um, and this is for trans women in particular. Trans men, you lucky ducks, testosterone does a lot for you and I'm jealous. But anyway, um, so this is something that has been difficult and actually I've been struggling with, um, in terms of putting myself back out there. I don't know for any of you who are listening, who are statues of cats fans, Daphne and the glitches fans who follow me on Instagram or anything like that. You will notice that I have been dramatically absent from social media over the past couple of years. I'm trying to get myself good and, um, it's been tough, but I think I'm finally at that place where I'm practicing self-care. I'm, I'm doing the things I need to do to achieve those personal goals that I keep putting off because I want to, you know, play rock and roll music <laughs> or whatever Absolutely. else. But that's important, right? Def is that you have to, the number one thing by far is that you have to take care of yourself. You do. Like, and especially, you know, during a, a global pandemic, the likes of which nobody has ever seen, cut yourself slack. That's my other piece of advice. Please cut yourself some slack. You may not be performing at 100%. You may not be living up to hustle culture right now. And that's Don't okay. beat yourself up. Yep. That's okay. Everyone, Everyone's at different stages in their lives and everyone handles things differently. Um, especially right now when we're dealing with a pandemic and, uh, I totally agree with you. I think number one thing, and, and this is what, you know, any, any expert will tell you, but just in general, uh, is that you have to take care of yourself. Nothing else truly, first of all, nothing else truly matters. 
except for taking making sure that you take care of yourself. But on top of that, too, if even if you want to, let's say, hustle or want to accomplish all these different types of things, you're unable yeah. to do that if you don't take care of yourself. Right? Eventually, you may be able to get by for a while, but eventually you will hit a wall and then things are going to be even worse. So number one thing is, you know, that's the thing is like right now for most of you out there. There are no expectations on you because everything is changing so dramatically, almost on a daily basis. So if you need to take a break for a while and take care of yourself, great. You don't, you know, people always are worried about posting on social media or content, content, content. But look, if you're not feeling it right now and you don't feel inspired or motivated, that is totally okay. Take a break. Write music. Do something. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be front facing. Just do something for yourself. Exercise. I know this sounds so basic, but like exercise, you know, I'm still working on that one. <laughs> I just went hiking for the first time and, Good for uh, you. in a couple of months. And let me tell oh, you, wow, I'm feeling okay. it today. So, but that's the thing is that, you know, it's okay. It's okay to take breaks from some of these things. It's okay yes. to maybe, you know, to maybe uh, indulge a little bit in a couple of things here and there. Like it's, you know, it's important for your own self growth to knowing what you want, not only what makes you happy, but also what you want to accomplish. And if there's any kind of silver lining to this situation that we're all in together as in the entire world, it is that it's, it's an opportunity for self-reflection. It's an opportunity to really feel what is important in your life, who is important in your life and gives you the ability to make changes and to maybe explore different things. And uh, so for anybody that's listening right now, that's something that I, I do highly, highly recommend. I mean, I've been doing that myself, you know, per, both personally and professionally. Uh, 80-20 Records has fundamentally changed in the past year uh, because of everything that's going on. And I think, and I, you know, hoping for the better, but that's the whole point is like it gave us the opportunity to explore these different things. This podcast came out back in last August because of and that was a big part of it because of the fact that so many things had fundamentally changed and we wanted to do see what other things we can accomplish. This was one of the bigger projects I really wanted to get off the ground was this particular podcast. And that enabled me or gave me the motivation to be able to do that. That's awesome. Okay, so we're going to talk about a couple of things here. So, <laughs> so you know, we've been friends at this point uh, for a very, very long time. But of course, our own friendship, um, both um, you know, personally as well as professionally, has been through its up and downs, like a lot of relationships do. And uh, so, you know, at this time uh, after the EP came out, I do we even before then, I know that we've had uh, a number of arguments in the past and so forth, and. Uh, it, it was in, you know, and to the point where we actually got into, I remember getting to a number of shouting matches with each other, just in difference of opinion on where the, you know, how it should be, how things should be done as far as the band's concerned. Yep. And, um, so yeah, and it was, it was very, it was a very stressful time because I cared so much about Statues of Cast because you are one of my best friends and I wanted the best for you. And we were just just not seeing eye to eye on things at all. Nope. And that eventually led to uh, 8020 and Statues of Cats kind of s- separating in different ways. Um, but yeah, um, 
you know, just wanted to see what, uh, what your thoughts were, um, during that time. Yeah. I mean, it was a very tricky and tumultuous time. I think, um, I think statues was really going through a lot of its own growing pains at that time and kind of, uh, on its way to eventually splitting, unfortunately. Um, and so that vicariously, um, created tension and pressure, um, on our professional relationship, the band in 8020. Um, I think that there were, uh, two distinct camps, um, in statues on like feelings toward the label and how things should be and, and this and that. And, um, it was tough. I know that, um, like looking back, uh, I definitely think that clear communication, um, on both sides would have really resolved a lot of the issues that we were facing. Um, and I think that, uh, it's definitely not an excuse, but I personally was in a really vulnerable spot at that time where, um, you know, like I said, tensions in the band were really high and, um, you know, we had put out, I'm pretty sure we had put out seven circles at that point. Right. Or how did it was, it was shortly there after, um, I, I know seven circles came out after, uh, after a 20 and, and say just, yeah, such a split. Yeah. I think that was actually a big kind of catalyst for the, the discussion and everything that we were having. Um, and that song, uh, ended up kind of creating a lot of problems for the band. Um, not even so much that song, but, um, there was a concept that I had suggested that I thought was going to be really cool for the band because, um, I thought, you know, we have four really strong songwriters. Um, I had primarily written the first EP, but I, you know, I saw, um, stuff that Johnny was writing. I saw stuff that Anthony was writing and, you know, I'd worked with Dan. I knew he could write songs like, uh, you know, crazy. And I said, why don't we all write our own individual EPs? You know, we write, I think originally the idea was like five songs each ended up getting like pared down to three. Um, and then put those songs together. And then we have, a self-titled album called statues of cats. And it'd be really cool to show off the, uh, individual writing strengths of everybody. Um, but because there was a lot of competing, uh, shall I say, um, projects in terms of vying for the band members attention, um, Anthony was a, you know, like he was a session musician. He was playing with a lot of other projects at the time. 
Um, he was working with Teenage Wrist, which, you know, he's gone on to do all sorts of cool stuff with them. And he, you know, has had also had his own uh, kind of project Iron Point that was probably percolating or formulating at that point. And Johnny was talking about doing his own project called Ready. Um, and then Dan, you know, he was in his own boat where he uh, was getting married and um, was also trying to continue to pursue his acting career um, where everyone kind of went off into their own worlds and were not as connected as we had been through most of the four and a half years we were together. Um, that was a big lesson I learned is that, you know, that was a very ambitious project to try to uh, pursue with the limited experience we'd had as a, you know, being a band together. And um, I think that uh, it ended up sort of, I don't know, just creating cre uh, communication barriers between everybody. Um, where I had certain expectations of what I wanted out of the band. And, you know, I think I also felt in a lot of ways um, like because, um, you know, I, for the most part, had been doing a, a bulk of the work in terms of like booking and promotion and um, things like that, the internal workings of the band, uh, I felt that in certain ways, my decision kind of had a little bit more weight, even though we had primarily established the band as kind of like a three musketeers, like all for one, one for all type situation. Um, but not establishing that leadership structure clearly and, you know, um, establishing how decisions were made uh, became a real big issue. Oh my gosh, this glare is killing me. I'm trying, trying my best to, <laughs> You're fine. but so. anyway, yeah, no, like it, um, really the lack of communication up front created a lot of issues on the back end that ended up causing our, our relationship to sour as well as, um, you know, my relationship with everybody else in the band. I agree. I, one of the lessons that I've learned was exactly the same thing that I hundred percent agree that both, both parties uh, could have been much better about uh, not only about uh, better about clearly communicating with each other, but also managing those expectations. As you mentioned within your own band, um, we definitely did not manage the ex expectations between the label and the artist. And that's something that was a, a, a needed lesson for me to learn and it's, you know, something that is extremely hard to do, even to this day, as clear as it's I can tough. try to make it, is really tough um, to to manage those expectations. And you're right, is to have those, you know, it's not just even about clear communication, but consi um, consistent and constant communication. 100%. A lot of times we weren't talking to each other for, you know, sometimes weeks on end about these things. Yep. And I think a big part of it was we weren't sure on, honestly, how to talk to each other. Um, especially because of the fact that we had such a strong friendship already, 
You yep. know what I mean? That it was hard to separate the friendship from the business side of things or or taking the friendship into account and knowing that we need to be upfront and honest with each other when we're not happy about how things are going or yep. that we think that things should maybe should be done differently or that we have concerns or whatever the case is, um, again, from both sides. So um, those are things that I that I really took to heart and I'm always aware of for every single artist that comes on board 8020 is trying my absolute hardest into managing those expectations, both what we're capable of doing for the artist, what we expect the artists are going to be able to do on their end, and also asking them those exact questions of what they are expecting out of themselves as well as what they are expecting out of us. Yep. And making sure that we try to have as much of that conversation as possible during, you know, while we were working together. Lessons learned, unfortunately, after the fact. <laughs> yeah. Well, then they wouldn't be lessons now, would they? That's true. Yeah. So, um, so then after that point, uh, you know, after Statues of Cats has now broken up, um, you know, at some point I move, uh, I moved back to Phoenix actually just before that, ha um, uh, a20 and statues have broken up. I moved back to Phoenix. And then uh, several years later, uh, you moved back to Phoenix as well. Uh, do you mind uh, talking about that a little bit? Sure. Well, so after statues broke up, or I should say after statues disbanded, um, I was in a position where I wanted to continue with the project. And I had been given um, basically license to do what I wanted with, with Statues of Cats, with, with the name and promoting the band and everything like that. And um, I tried um, for, I'd say at least another year after, year, maybe year and a half before uh, I left uh, Los Angeles where um, I had found a drummer um, who was awesome killer player. Um, Eva was, uh, super fun to play with. And we did like a two piece thing. Um, since we didn't have anyone else to play with at the time was kind of looking for, um, fill-ins and just not really finding anybody that fit um, while simultaneously working on another project with Eva uh, and my friend Anna uh, called Staircase Spirits, trying to play guitar and produce that um, project a little bit. And it was just tough for me personally because um, when, when the guys left, when I uh, got the basically email message saying that you know, they, they weren't going to be part of the project anymore. I think I was really hurt and I wasn't ready to say that I was hurt by it. I think I was wanting to maintain composure or something. Um, and, um, again, lack of communication. We didn't talk about it after the fact, it just kind of became a non-issue, uh, in terms of talking. And even though I would see the guys, I'd see them at social gatherings because we all kind of had the same social circle and everything like that. Um, 
And that kind of was painful for me um, to, to deal with. And I was really struggling uh, personally with my transition at that point, because I still had only gotten so far um, in the medical side of things. There were some things that I wanted to take care of personally that were sort of um, keeping me from moving forward in that department. And I was also dealing with some uh, workplace struggles where I actually um, had to go back in the closet at work and then had to come out at work, um, which was really difficult. And um, financially I was not in the best place. So it kind of got to a point where everything was getting pretty rough. And I said, you know what? I think I need a break. I really didn't like the idea of leaving LA because in a lot of ways, you know, it uh, has the stigma of being, you know, like you're a failure if you leave or you, you know, like you didn't tough it out. You weren't good enough or whatever. Right. And I, you know, had to kind of deal with all of that. And I decided, um, you know, I think I need to leave, needed to leave. And I had to tell staircase spirits that and kind of started from scratch. Um, I had gotten to the point in playing with Eva where I think I realized that I wanted to do an, a new project. I think um, I had realized that like what we were doing together was different enough from what statues was and the fact that the other three members were not in it that I was like, you know what, I want to rebrand. I want to do something different. And I eventually, after a lot of talking about it and um, figuring out what exactly I wanted to call it, came up with Daphne and the Glitches. Um, and then when I came back to Phoenix, which is uh, my mom lives there, um, and I was able to you know, kind of couch surf at her place for a while until I got myself established back in Phoenix. Um, started building from scratch, you know, like I basically had to do the same thing that I did in Los Angeles in Arizona, which was I got a job at Guitar Center because there's not a whole lot of music opportunities here in Arizona. Um, and started networking there, started trying to communicate with people like, hey, you know, like I do this, here's my old project. This is the kind of music I do, but I've got this new thing and I'm looking for players. And um, kind of had a um, start and stop uh, situation where I had found a couple uh, members to play a show or two with in Phoenix when I was working at the Phoenix location. I think we did one show and then actually Moira was one of those first, uh, couple <laughs> glitches. Yep. Moira was one of Arizona. Those first yep. Mo Moira in, in, uh, for everyone is, is actually one of our team members in a toy records. And, um, then I, uh, transferred from the Phoenix store to the Tempe store um, because I had a opportunity to move up in, in guitar center and, um, 
then just the distance between where I was working and those people kind of became an issue and um, kind of started again, found some people at this store, started playing with them, did a couple shows, kind of, kind of, you know, was working a little bit. Um, and then I transferred one more time after a couple more months later, I want to say it was like six, actually it might've been like seven months after I transferred to Tempe, I transferred to Mesa. And that's when things started to come together for the new reincarnated, reincarnated Daphne and the Glitches, where um, I met a drummer uh, who worked at the store uh, and we started jamming. That worked out. Then that first show that I did with Moira, one of the other bands that played with me, um, uh, Kiss the Sun, had this bass player who I remember very distinctly uh, singing and playing a cover of Helter Skelter. And her name was Alex Saint, and she really stuck out uh, in my memory of like, whoa, this girl can play and perform. And if she's ever free, I am going to hit her up. So um, it wasn't until I started playing with uh, the drummer T, um, who's also another incredible musician in Arizona, um, that I thought, hey, maybe I should text that Alex girl uh, who we had chatted uh, after that show and um, talked about jamming, but it never happened. And then she joined the project and my good friend at the Tempe store said, hey, I met this really cool person I think you'd like. Let's do like dinner or something. And that's when I met Cal. Uh, we did dinner at Fuck Cal, actually. And great, great place. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, played many a show there. Really, really fun shows there. Um, and met Cal. Cal jumped in. Um, and then... Uh, that same person who recommended Cal jumped in. And so we had like a five piece at that point. Um, and then uh, wasn't too long after that, that I broke my leg in 2019. That's right. It was April right... 2019. Yeah. I remember that. That was we scary. Had, yeah. We had played like three or four shows with the, that particular configuration um and broke my leg totally put a uh stop on things again for me to uh broke so broke my femur and ankle in two places Oof. just for the record yeah not you, you, fun yeah not walking not a for a while time. yeah um that took about like six months to heal up from yeah it took a while played an acoustic show on crutches uh, we had lost the keyboard player, Lucy and um, T at that point, they had other things going on and, you know, things were on hold. And so they moved on. And so I was like, oh, who are we going to get to play drums? And at that point, I had a good friend um, at the Mesa store who said, you know what? I know a guy. I think I think you're going to uh, get along with him. 
he ended up not showing the person who he originally meant, but his roommate, who is a bass player who also drums, showed up. And uh, that was Neil. And he kind of solidified the lineup. And from that point, we were like, okay, we have a band. This is, this is a band here. Um, not to mention, last little, you know, circling on back to 42 Eternal, um, Megan Ramos, who uh, played in 42 Eternal, played cello and bass and all sorts of cool stuff. She had been living in Phoenix and we had been chatting. And then all of a sudden she started popping into the project too. So we had a six piece, which was the largest project I'd ever had. That's incredible. And it's amazing how, how things kind of come full circle where people that you met, this is why it's so important that to, to have a good rapport with people that you have, you know, collaborated with in the past. Cause you just don't know when your paths are going to cross again. Yep. No, a hundred percent. And it's, it's been really fun getting to play with her again. Cause it's like, you know, when we got on stage, oh, and I mean, I guess what really kind of rekindled our relationship, Megan and I, was the 8020 Records 10th uh, anniversary reunion show That's where right. 42 Eternal got to play uh, set. And uh, I had a part in coordinating the 42 side of things since I was out here you in did. Phoenix. And uh, it was, that was a lot of fun. And that was so much fun. That's still also, I think, also up there with the Halloween show uh, was the 10th anniversary show in general, but yeah, having, I've, you and I have discussed about doing a reunion show for 42 Eternal for years. And we had, it was 100%. such a joy to actually ha see that come to fruition. Mm -hmm. Also, I do want to uh, take a, a little segue here real quick. And I do want to shout out to, to Moira because not only is Moira, uh, an 8020 team member, but Moira is also the one that uh, helps do all the post production to this wonderful podcast that all of you are listening to. So, and I know Moira is probably listening to this very right now. So, I want to thank you to, to publicly say thank you to Moira for all the work that Moira has done. So, thank you so, so much. It means a lot to us. Thank you, Moira. So, um, yeah, so now Daphne Lich's bands all together now. What are some of the things that's now treating this project differently um, in comparison to now that you've learned all these different types of lessons? What, what, are, what are some things that you've now taken from that and then applied to this new project? Well, um, I think one of the biggest lessons that I've applied pretty um, early on in the project and definitely kind of was my... Uh, Partially the reason that the project is Daphne and the glitches is um, because I knew how rare it is to kind of capture lightning in a bottle and do what statues did where you have a band of people who are able to not only, you know, play music well with one another, but tolerate each other on a personal level, long enough to become a successful band, um, this project is kind of a little bit of a safeguard in that regard because I, you know, who knows uh, what everyone's got going on. And um, with Daphne and the Glitches, it is my project. 
Um, and, you know, obviously I want everyone involved to have a say. I want everyone to be as uh, involved as possible. But I also know that in the end analysis, since I am the one who is doing the bulk of the work in terms of booking and setting up events and social media and this and that, I have the final say and there's no, you know, miscommunication there. Um, now, is that to say I would never do a band project again? Absolutely not. Honestly, like that is my preferred way to be involved in music is to have like a, a consistent band that is not necessarily like one entity or the other or anything, but you have your regular members and this is the band. And, you know, there's, there's something magical about that. Um, and the glitches, which is its own band within the band. Um, at this point, it's a little bit more uh, open um, to having other people come in and play with me, especially, um, and it wasn't always necessarily like that. Um, you know, when we came to that lineup of six that I was mentioning, um, it was pretty solid, but, um, the thing that really kind of changed my mentality and has forced me in some ways to open things up, uh, was COVID COVID came and, um, basically divided the project where, you know, like certain people would have scares and, uh, you know, maybe have had contact and they had to go get tested and we had to wait for the test results to come back and that, you know, or maybe they were positive and they had to quarantine and they had to wait for, you know, however many days until they were okay to come work on stuff safely again. Um, and, I just wanted to keep working on things. You know, I think that in this time, we've all kind of had to figure out what our coping mechanisms are for dealing with the pandemic and dealing with isolation and things like that. And one of my main coping mechanisms is working on music. Um, but it's not been particularly easy for everyone to get together and their comfortability, uh, you know, issues, people not feeling comfortable meeting up, which is totally understandable. And, you know, I would never want to put anyone in a position where they feel uncomfortable uh, coming to work on stuff. So um, I've had some uh, new folks come in and we've been trying to uh, move forward because we were actually this close to releasing an EP. In February, we had put out our single. We put out Outgoing Mail. Which is fantastic, by have... the way. And that, Thank that's, you. You know, that's the thing is that Outgoing Mail did come out, and that was uh, a song that you've been wanting to, you've been working on for quite some time. So uh, it was amazing. I mean, I personally, I could have been prouder as your friend uh, when you released that single. And that, you know, it, and that's especially at the time, because if you think about it, that, was like right before the pandemic hit. It was right, right before. When, Right, and you you just finally healed your leg. You got your band together. You got everything together, and then released a single. Then, bam, pandemic hit. So, but but still, it's amazing that you're still able to not only release that single, but it's such a solid single. And especially with 
the you know the band that kind of just formed like you know as its current version like not too long ago from that point. Yep. No, a hundred percent. And um, I can't wait to release these next four songs, <laughs> the rest of the EP, because they're also really great songs. Not to toot my own horn too much, but <laughs> I can't wait either. I, I also want to like them. And that's the other thing too, is like, you know, out of all the, the uh, struggles and challenges uh, that you face with these multiple projects too, also want to point out uh, the success of Statues of Cats, you know, even like post, like post band, because it, it took on its own, you know, own traction because of it how has. good the music is. And, you know, you know, last time I checked, like Animals Crying was over like 300,000 streams. And I mean, Seven Circles has done fantastically well too. Absolutely. So, you know, that's the thing also is like you just sometimes don't know what's going to happen afterwards. And oh. a band that, you know, really, you know, was was winding down at that point in time, all of a sudden see, saw this massive increase in interest in the project. Yep. And um, I'm actually I'm going to take this opportunity for anyone who's listening to the podcast and may or may not have been a Statues of Cats fan to mention that there may be something in the works. Ooh, you did a little drop. <laughs> just a little. I'm not going to say what just yet. I'm not going to say much more than that. Uh, you can bug me on your own if you want. Feel free to hit up the statues page or Daphne and the Glitches page. But um, statues ain't dead. It's just been uh, just resting. Yeah. You just again. You just don't know where the future brings for yourself. And yep. it's always good to keep your keep keep your doors as open as possible because you just don't know what's going to happen and what's going to click in the future. Yep. Wow. Well, I think we can go on for multiple hours here, but I think this would be a good uh, stopping point. So thank you so much, Daphne, for your time. This was my pleasure. So thank much fun. For having and, me. Oh, absolutely. And uh, yeah, for everyone out there, I'll uh, see you guys soon. Thanks, Daphne. Bye, guys. Thank you so much for listening to The 8020 Show. To learn more about 8020 Records, you can check us out on pretty much any social media at 8020records or visit our website at www.8020records.com. Until next time, be happy, be healthy, and be productive. <laughs>